Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my absent co-host, Stephen Bush, who will not be absent later. He will be, in fact, talking to you about Kezia Dugdale's resignation as Scottish Labour leader, what on earth is going on with Brexit, and the burning question of the summer, can you be friends with a Tory? Welcome back, Stephen. No, hang on a minute. Continuing to welcome you back after last week where you were also back. I was also back. That's how much I've blotted out the, the bong fest of last week. I wanted to talk to you about Kezia Dugdale, if that's okay. I am interested in your take. So she resigned on Tuesday night quite late, unhelpfully for our print deadline. Thank you very much. Her and Donald Trump are on a kind of mission to ruin the magazine's timeliness as leader of Scottish Labour. Now, talk me through who the possible replacements are. Well, so I'm slightly nervous and more people will rule themselves out uh-huh. as I do this. Okay, so let's talk about the initial field, because we know someone already has ruled themselves out, right? Neil Findlay, who ran against Jim Murphy in 2014. Whose book cover depicts him, Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Jones against a crowd of activists, and I think it's called Socialism and Hope. So I think that kind of gives you the idea of where, where he is placed within the party. So I think, like, Neil Findlay's one of those politicians who, like, he's a bit like John Crudders, right? Except, well, from a slightly different bit of the party. But a lot of people I respect rate him I really in both cases have never quite got it and he does have like weird unforced gaffes well he was uh, in a big in twitter um, around with Jerry Hassan Scottish commentator who wrote a piece about Scottish Labour's need to be more radical, basically. And then he just kind of decided to, much like my great Twitter row with Richard Bergen, I did think, come on, this is a bit beneath you. God, it's, this is, he, I realise he has become the Chris Marshall of this leadership race. Like, he's ruled himself out. He wasn't ever in it, but he is sort of... And you're non- piling in and giving him a kicking anyway. But nonetheless, people just be like, yeah, we don't think you'd be any good at this. So Alex Rowley, her deputy, is currently acting an interim Currently acting leader. and may run. Richard Leonard, who hasn't been an MSP very long, but is well-connected in the movement, uh, may run. Run, Jenny Mara may run, Anna Sawa, who again is kind of like Labour establishment royalty, may run. And it's all MSPs so far, right? It's Which all... I think is significant and does reflect the change since the Jim Murphy era when he was yeah, I mean, I think, an MP. So there are a couple of sort of interesting factors. One is that, obviously, she's given the her, her reasons for the resignation, which says, like, you know, I want to do other things with my life and I've got the party to a point where it is stronger than it was when I inherited it and I can pass it on. There is an element of the fact that like people were circling and there was some pressure whether or not that meant the, the personal stuff you kind of go like well I kind of want to leave and I might as well go but because the timing of it has caught a lot of people on the hop it does mean that there is not 
yet a Corbynite or a left candidate that is certainly nailed on. I've been talking to a lot of people this morning who have kind of gone like, well, we thought this was going to happen, but we were not expecting it to happen now. Nonetheless, membership of all political parties moves closer and closer to its current leader. Liberal conservatives leave because they don't like citizens of nowhere. Diehard Remainers have started to leave the Labour Party, etc., etc. They move towards and start to resemble their leader. So you would assume that the Owen Smith lead will have been eroded by that. And also... Don't forget that a lot of people who voted for Owen Smith did so because they worried primarily about electability. So that's the fact that the majority of Scottish Labour members voted for Owen Smith in the 2016 leadership election. Yeah, so one's assumption would be that even though at the moment there is some uncertainty about who the candidate will be from the left, that the candidate from the left will win. Regardless, of course, the big difference is that all internal elections in the Labour Party till at least 2022 and and very probably until at least midway through whatever kind of Labour hinged government emerges after the next election will be through uh, the prism of what I've always liked about myself is Jeremy kind of lens right so even if the person who wins privately doesn't think Jeremy Corbyn is all that they will not be an explicit Corbyn sceptic in the way the Burnham gambit one might call it yeah the Burnham gambit so I think uh, I think it's time to appraise a bit about Kezia Dugdale's legacy. I interviewed her just after she'd taken over it. She went up to Edinburgh. A, she's just genuinely quite a nice, friendly person. She had a nice chat about how she always wanted to become a lawyer because she'd watched Ali McBeal at university. She was quite human in that sense. I mean, I think essentially she was a victim of the glass cliff, which was no one else wanted, you know. Jim Murphy had had to leave that position after having presided over an absolutely catastrophic meltdown absolutely down to one MP from this kind of time only 10 years before when Scottish Labour was this huge venerable institution and she was essentially the kind of like you know here's the dog poo tidied away kind of candidate right someone ran against her Ken McDonald Ken McIntosh but that was really more for appearances sake than kind of anything else just to make it look like it wasn't a complete lemon but she did stabilize them but she I mean did, one of the things I think is I, well I think is a really interesting thing is that she went into the Hollywood elections promising to restore the 50p tax rate right yeah. she actually kind of called the SNP's bluff about their anti-austerity credentials by saying well actually you know what I think rich people should pay a bit more tax and guess what she got slaughtered, like Labour came in third in that behind the Conservatives. So I think there's a really interesting reflection there about what actually Scottish politics wants, why people who vote for the SNP, what they're really voting for. The difficulty I, I feel always with assessing leaders of, of the Scottish Labour Party in recent times is in some ways, once Wendy Alexander didn't get to do what she wanted to do in 2007, which is go, you've won, let's have this referendum on independence now. Okay, thanks, bye, and held a referendum pre-financial crisis with a popular Scottish Prime Minister in Westminster. Once you don't do that, in many ways, you can make a really strong argument that every decision that every other Scottish Labour leader made has been like pressing a series of buttons that you would ideally not want to have a choice of pressing. Nonetheless, I do think that the result last year in the devolved elections was quite a bad one. My instinct was that it was probably avoidable. The penny for Scotland idea had already not worked with the SNP because you can basically only very crudely raise taxes in, uh, on, on income uh, in terms of the devolved powers. You can basically put a penny on everything. Was oh, this can't. the hypothecated tax for the NHS? And more am I getting... So the SNP had already done what the Scottish Labour Party did in 2016 and similarly got a really bad result. They also had the problem that they kind of 
tried to be the party of the shrug as far as the union question was concerned in 2016 and that didn't work either so kind of her two big tactical gambits both of which you know at the time you can make Mm. a case for did not work right so i think that has to be fairly yeah, I damning think that's not, I think assessment. That's... Then I think the... the but qu- the manner of her leaving is definitely... I mean, and there was a pointed line in the resignation statement, which obviously referred back to Johan Lamont leaving in, I want to say, 2014. 15. When no, she, 14, 14, yeah. when she said Ed Miliband is, has treated Scottish Labour like a branch office, which was like the biggest bruise you possibly could have punched. I mean, you might say it was true... And actually what it meant was that Kezia Dugdale was then able to get essentially a kind of fully federal party through, right? She was able to get much more autonomy as a result, which is probably for the best. But her departure has not left them in the lurch, right? It feels like a natural break. And actually the way know, that she's did... done it has not kind of, she's not exited tossing a hand grenade over her shoulder. I know. I did love that paragraph, which began with, I do not leave with any grudges. I'm not going to brief against like, people. <laughs> I'm not going to have a press conference. Bam, Lamont. Bam, Murphy. <laughs> Two light hits at her immediate predecessors. There's not going to be any briefing from me again. Some more hits from immediate predecessors, which I mean is, you know, fair enough. I think it is certainly true that, and I think one of the reasons why there would, I think, have been a challenge against her at some point is that after 2016, that job was just incredibly unattractive looking because they'd just come third. Everyone's like, are you going to die? Now, in after the 2017 election... It looks not only like Scottish Labour is not going to die, but there are a large swathe of SNP-held seats where Labour are very closely in second. And so it's an attractive... Well, that's what was really interesting about the kind of Corbyn Scottish tour, right? Because I was mewing from the SNP about why are you not going to Tory seats? Amazing chutzpah from the SNP as ever. Like, I thought, you know, I thought, guys, I thought we had something. I thought we were going to take on Tory austerity together. Mm, Okay, yeah. But actually, in tactical terms, it was exactly right. Those are the seats Corbyn should be going to because it's SNP-held seats that are Labour's targets. And they are basically nowhere in in any of those seats. I think it's Jim Murphy's old seat is the first Tory-held seat that they could win, right? Yeah, and even and then it's like a big like, well, good luck with that. But I mean, I think that the, the fascinating question, and this is not, this is honestly a question which no one I think is equipped to answer yet, because obviously elections are so situation specific, right? Then you can make a strong case, and I instinctively think it's about right, that the enthusiasm for Corbyn resulted in direct defections of that, yeah, very small amount, but that one in 10 yes voters who, who defected back to the Labour Party, and their kind of ambiguity on some of the constitutional things meant that they were the biggest beneficiaries of tactical voting, even though they did not win as many seats as the Conservatives. But there is another argument, which, you know, like in terms of the available information, stacks up exactly as well, which is actually the real story of the 2017 election in Scotland was just the SNP collapsing, right? So take uh, Kirkcaldy, Gordon Brown's old seat. They actually won that back with a lower share of, of the vote than they lost it. In three of the seven seats that they won, they actually got fewer votes than in 2015. It was just that the SNP vote went way down. And that's also true in most of the places where the March... Yeah, where but that's the, the whole story become, of the 2017 election, which doesn't ever get told, right? It's the kind of idea that same thing happened with the Tories. You know, they don't, they will never ever get any credit for the fact that they dramatically increased the Conservative vote share because relative, you know, because you don't win on absolutes, right? It's all yeah, about it, like, yeah, relative. It's it's first past the post, right? Like, but the big question is, is then what people always forget about, like, oh, was our candidate inspiring? Isn't in an odd way. If you are inspired by the message of change of of leaving the United Kingdom and then you're inspired by Corbyn, there are two things you can do. You can actually go, you know, I'm happy with both and I've been asked to vote like an inordinately large number of times. I'm okay. I like both of these. I'll stay home. 
you've actually still weirdly done better if you're the Scottish Labour Party by inspiring people, yeah. even if they haven't voted for you. You can inspire people and they directly vote for you, or you can not demoralise people, right? And you can make an argument and that's what the SNP did. We basically won't ever really know because, yeah, elections are situation-specific. But it is quite difficult, I think, to make any data-led case that the Scottish result in 2017 was really about the leadership of the party in Scotland. And they very much did fight the Scottish election. Paul Sweeney, one of the new Scottish uh, Labour MPs, was like, we fought our election like it was an Edinburgh South by-election. They had a thing of, we need to hold what we have, we need to hold on to Ian Murray. On the whole, I think a lot of the criticisms of like, oh, Labour's campaign was in the wrong place and they'd have won more seats actually isn't true because the thing about election campaigns is they the reason why they tend to cancel each other out and you saw this in Putney right the conservatives knew even though they did not know what was going on in the rest of England that they had a distinct problem in in Putney so they moved a lot of resources back there and it actually didn't really matter that Labour had moved some resources there as well because it cancelled each other out what tends to happen and you see this basically in all elections, is that if your field campaign moves where it thinks its frontier is, even if the other campaign thinks that you might be mad, they will go like, okay, well, we'd better put more staff in. So probably in England and Wales, if Labour had fought a more offensive campaign, the Tories would have fought a more defensive campaign, and you just end up with the same result sort of by default. The big button in Scotland, however, is of course the SNP can't move, is, is already defending the existing sets of seats. It has no offensive frontier anyway. Yeah, right? I think that's the thing so, that you have to remember so, when you think about that SNP result is that the, the tie could only ever go out for them, right? Yeah, which does mean that you can make a much better argument, although obviously in terms of the actual parliamentary arithmetic, in terms of like a hung parliament, SNP seat, Labour seat, that makes the square root of NAFL difference in terms of who goes to Buckingham Palace. Quick final thing, which is I think it's interesting. Obviously, the leaders of Welsh and Scottish Labour have a seat on the NEC, Labour's ruling council, where rule changes are enacted. Of all the candidates we've seen, I know we don't have the final list yet, you would expect them to be at least publicly pro-Corbyn, whatever their underlying politics, whether or not they are a true believer, whether or not they're somebody who's a kind of from the just make it work faction. That's going to make things easier for Corbyn to get stuff that he wants done on the NEC? In practice, I don't think it will change anything because in terms of the union allocation, Unite at the moment has this quite large chunk because UCAT and another trade union embarrassing life which has been absorbed into unite which means at the moment unite has an outsized number of delegates on labor's ruling nec they will lose one possibly to unison because they are one of labor's biggest unions and that means that you go from having a solid vote to a swing vote so actually what i expect it will mean is by the end of party conference the balance will be the same i.e hung with more genuine swing voters on it though uh, and then at the moment, you kind of go, it's hung, but there are in practice maybe four people who might actually change their mind about anything. And can I mention one more thing, which is I think that it highlights again the Labour's structural woman problem, because all of the candidates, with the exception of one that we talked about, who might replace Kezia Dugdale, are men. You've got a man as London mayor, Manchester mayor, in fact, all the metro mayors, Carwin Jones in, in Wales. Although Jeremy Corbyn has a gender balanced cabinet and has, you know, Diane Abbott and Emily Thornbury and, and Angela Rayner in kind of senior frontline positions. It's still kind of pushing uphill a bit, right, on, on some of that stuff. And I also think there is an interesting secondary sound, which I don't understand what it's about, is that more women have sacrificed their careers to criticise Jeremy Corbyn than, than men in the Labour Party. 
Yeah, it, it is a... There's been lots of male critics of Jeremy Corbyn, don't get me wrong, you've got your John Manns and people like that, but they weren't people who were heading for, you know, shadow cabinet glory who then aborted that. Yeah, no, I think that's the fascin... Because, you know, in some ways... I mean, obviously, the Labour Party is frequently annoying, but the slight disingenuousness of some of the reaction and some of the briefing yesterday of either people going, no, 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 no one on the left wanted cares to go. It's just like, okay, pull yeah, the, other the other one, one. It, yeah. it plays, it plays the, red the red flag. flag. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Then you had people going, oh, it's disgraceful, disgraceful that the leader of the Labour Party should ideally want someone... An who, ideological ally who didn't and supporter. didn't say that yeah. they were going to like be left carping on the sidelines if he won. It's just like, mm, okay, wind your neck in. But yeah, as you say, Carwin Jones very much decided, actually, do you know what? I'm not going to be involved in this fight down in London. Kez obviously decided she was... Because of how things worked out, that probably did always mean her days were numbered. I have no idea why that is. It, it, it is a really interesting... Yeah, it might be purely coincidental. But, you know, when you think about the really, really, I think, effective practical criticisms that have been of Corbyn's leadership, I'm not talking about your kind of your Chris Leslie's or your John Manns or, you know, people like that who just, you know, they sort of just hate the whole idea. When I'm talking about people who've tried and failed to work with Corbyn, actually it's been women, it's been Lillian Greenwood's piece, for example, I think is one of them, or Chion Wara, who have actually made, I think, the most compelling criticisms of his leadership. Uh, yeah, it is quite striking in a way, like if you're Chris Leslie, it's not like there was a parallel universe in which you had like a, a glittering front branch career under Corbyn. Whereas, I mean, the fascinating thing, and the thing I realised I did kind of underestimate Sadiq about, is I would not have expected him to endorse Owen Smith, mm. particularly because it was clear at that point that Owen Smith was going to get like whomped. No, that was a rare kind of futile gesture, you know, kind of futile, but cor- sort of, you know, correct and standing by your principles gesture from Sadiq, who's otherwise an extremely tactical politician. Witness his tacking hard to the left during the primaries where he talked about how he'd won the people who put Jeremy Corbyn on the ballot and then going straight into a mail on Sunday interview where he said, I don't know if I've ever mentioned that I love the Queen, love that Queen, to kind of then put some distance between him and, and Jeremy Corbyn. So, yeah, well, well done, Sadiq. But you know, it has, and it also kind of a slightly cost-free thing to him, given that he wasn't up for election. For, I mean, he can tack back Corbyn Woods before he comes up he's for true, election. He's got a long, long time. Yeah. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Stephen. Yeah. Do we have to talk about Brexit? Yes, we do, I'm afraid. So the negotiations have reached a slight impasse as we speak, although maybe by the time this arrives in listeners... Oh, yeah, they'll have definitely sorted it all out by tomorrow. Um, Whatever the the equivalent of a podcast inbox is. Ears. Box. When it arrives in listeners' ears, maybe that will all have changed. So the central issue of contention is the ideal time frame as far as i mean obviously there's only two years overall in article 50 there are now less than two years available is that you would deal with the kind of legacy issues so the question of the uk's outgoing commitments a second thing i can't remember and the state of the northern irish border or at least you'd have made sufficient progress on trade those. arbitration presumably acj judgment accepting the rule of the acj oh no citizens citizens rights because basically there's the manner of leaving 
And then there's the future relationship, and you have to have sufficient progress to move on. The difficulty is, on the EU side, you probably can't actually have a resolution on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic without having some idea what the future relationship is. Ditto in terms of the size of the so-called divorce bill. If, for example, the United Kingdom is going to continue to participate in Europol, European research projects, and pay into those, obviously there is no need for that to be included in its ongoing liabilities. So so the UK government does have a point that the divide is slightly, not just arbitrary, but doesn't quite work. Mm. There's quite a big but coming, though, which is that they don't need to resolve these issues. They just need to be able to demonstrate some form of progress. And in all of uh, those issues, if the British government took the process somewhat seriously, yeah, and not in this kind of weird thing of, like, we have to, like, trick these guys and what's up. have to go over and show Johnny Foreigner a taste of hard British steel and then he'll cave in our favour. So, for example, what is the issue on the budget, right? It's basically the other creditor nations of the EU, France, Germany, etc., etc., are worried that when Britain leaves, they will be on the hook for a larger chunk of payments, right? So one of the, the many mistakes Theresa May has made in the Brexit talks is because of allowing a lot of this nonsense talk of, oh, we won't pay a single penny to run over, what that has then encouraged is increasingly silly numbers to emerge from EU member states and the parliament in a view of like, well, if you're saying no to a number we think is reasonable, we clearly have to go 100 billion in the hope of getting a reasonable amount. What the UK should have done before it triggered Article 50 is come up with a formula it would accept, right? So we think that X number of years of payments into the investment fund should be taken out. We think Y number of proportion of the buildings that have been bought by money that the UK has contributed. And we also want to continue to pay into the following number of programs. And all of this should set the final budget, right? So you ought to have been able to get to an agreement on that quite quickly. But instead, there's been ridiculous, like, oh, we need to show we're tough, we're going to walk away at some point, which, like, one, it doesn't work, because basically everyone on the other side thinks it would be crazy. Yeah, madman theory only works really when people think you're either actually genuinely think you're mad or think that they're like a nuclear war, they think it will damage them too, yeah. as equivalent to you. There's a great sort of game theory paper about it. Yes, it's time for it's some time game for theory. Some game theory, um, how exciting. But you know, it's basically you've got two colliding cars, right? And some drivers swerve and some don't. This swerve, is madman right? theory, yeah. This yeah. is what Lawrence Friedman has written about in the uh, New Statesman this week. This is why, without even the benefit of a PPE degree, I already know about this. All yeah. oh, right, okay. Well, I actually have a his- history degree, but I didn't realize. How do you know about this? I didn't realise that we'd written about swerving and non-swerving participants, but now I do, and you, like me, can buy it tomorrow in stores. Basically, the, the problem is, is the UK is not a non-swerving participant. The UK economy cannot come out without significant damage from a direct head-on collision. The difficulty is a large chunk of people running the British government seem to believe it might, and they also think that the threat that they will do so is credible. On the EU side, maybe the, there will be some moment in the summer next year when people go like, oh, maybe the UK is crazy enough to do it. So far, that hasn't happened, so that approach isn't really working. They could have worked all that stuff out and then, I don't know, like knock £10 billion pounds off it, and but still kind of come to it right. They could have at least kind of come up with a formula, even if the formula came up with a, a number that was unacceptably low, right? And then, yeah, and then that allows you Don't to... Don't really seem to have done that. ...have, like, parked that enough to move on to the sort of crucial stuff. Because actually, for the, the money stuff is... 
from a UK kind of national interest perspective, is really open and shut. It's a lot of money in terms of like you, I, even buying a football team, it's quite a lot of money. But in terms of like the actual size of the UK economy, 40 billion, 50 billion, you are you are just talking about the, an amount of money that you're just very willing to go like, of course, we'll pay this for... Do you know what's beginning to really annoy me, though? Which is that almost every raft of this negotiation seems to be geared to getting as as close as possible back to kind of what we currently have, but with controls on immigration, right? That's what I'm just feeling a lot of. We're just kind of like there was a talk about kind of copying and pasting trade deals, right? It seems like the best exit from the EU is basically like exactly like EU membership, but without accepting freedom of movement. And you just think, I think we wish we could have probably worked a little bit harder at that before the whole referendum business. Well, I think, I mean, the thing is, I ultimately, like, you can't very easily, as I say in my column this week, you you can't very easily get out of free movement while remaining in the EU. I think actually the problem for all, you know, instinctively, I think, you know, free movement is great. On the whole, we should have more, not less of it. You know, we, we should be seeking to you know, in, increase the, the movement of people between nation states, not decrease it. But you probably could in the Brexit negotiations, if all you cared about as the UK government was, we look want as close to the relationship as we have now, but we need some kind of action on mm. free movement, right? You you probably can get that if that's literally all you care about. If you don't care about sovereignty, right? If you're just willing to accept like, then you follow all the rules, but you don't set them. You probably could get a comprehensive deal where we don't leave the EU other than the free movement of people. And this is the slight problem with the Brexit vote, right? If you look at what ordinary people who voted to leave actually want, not nothing to change, people not to get poorer, and sovereignty, which is just an abstract concept and no one really cares about, is one that would command a great deal of public support. If you basically have like a Norway deal, but instead of fish, which was the, the big political issue, you have migration, right? The difficulty is, is that is not acceptable to basically any Brexiteer in the political class, because what they really care about is the chimera of our own trade deals and sovereignty. There are probably four plausible types of Brexit that the government could try and seek. And instead, it's not even they've gone with like all of them, because at least then that would be a process where opposition parties, the EU 27, could go, well, you can't have all of them, you need to pick one. Mm. Instead, they have this weird thing where they're kind of doing half of the things you would do to pursue... An immigration Brexit, and half of the things from a sovereignty Brexit. And and actually, ultimately, like, you do kind of have to decide which one of those... You ma- you know, like, and this is why, although I think it is fair to say Labour have a hard Brexit and not the Brexit policy I think is best for Britain, being in the customs union is just a massive order of magnitude different in terms of, among other things, the Irish border than not being in it. Yeah. Because if you have the same customs regime and you don't need to have customs checks and you basically broadly accept that like people will be able to will have free will movement. Across yeah, a like field, a, yeah. yeah, like a few people who who are Polish citizens may, you know, shock horror get jobs in Northern Ireland. Then you can have like the situation as it exists now. Partly because no one in the EU wants there to be a hard border and no one in the UK. But what you can't do is have this weird, fictitious Brexit that we are currently trying to pursue. And if you'd like to hear more of Stephen ranting about the EU, why not subscribe to Morning Call, where he does it every single morning from the 4th of September. September. And now it's time for a little feature we like to call... You 
ask us. Indeed. So this week uh, you have asked us, following the statement by Laura Pidcock, a newly elected MP for Durham, I'm going to say Northeast, gave an interview to Squawk Box, which is one of these new alternative media sites you've heard so much about, in which she said, you know, I'm not here to make friends. I don't really think I'll be socialising with any conservatives while I'm here. And this kind of has been interpreted as like, basically, can you be friends with a Tory? Even though she did actually mean Tory MPs, which is like quite a different, like it's a big difference between like, could you be friends with... A Tory voter, someone who has voted lots of different ways, but the last election voted Tory, and somebody who is a lifelong Conservative. So I have quite strong thoughts on this because I have been researching and reading the work of James Graham, who you may know wrote This House, the play, which focuses on the period between 1974 and 79. And the big thing that he does in that play that is, I think, really interesting and runs very counter to the current mood is that the central relationship is between Jack Wetherill, who is the deputy chief whip for the Tories and Walter Harrison who's the deputy chief whip for Labour and it shows them as two men who have huge ideological disagreements actually big kind of almost class disagreements although Jack Wetherill left school I think at 17 and became a tailor and always used to carry a thimble in his pocket to remind him of where he came from but you know they're from from a time when the, the class split in the parties was just really really obvious but the core of that play is about them essentially treating each other as you know respectful opponents which as I think is a different different idea about how parliament works than the Laura Pidcock ideal. I don't think those people, two people would have been friends necessarily, but they certainly respected each other. And I think that to me is the kind of key question. And why I don't like the way this is being framed is that I just think some of the language that gets used on the left about the idea of, of Tories being evil and voting on stuff that sends people to their deaths and stuff like that, I just think turns politics from politics into something quasi-religious. And it's actually usually more helpful rather than to think of people being evil than structures being in need of reform. The thing is, though, is right is you you can draw a direct line between public policy and people's deaths, right? So, like, it, there, and there is a, a moral quality to politics and the political process. Yeah, but no one's hands are clean. This is what I think is, is you know, you're talking about the fact that Jeremy Corbyn refused to condemn Maduro in Venezuela, sort of sending tanks against his own people. Like, I just don't think you will, if you go through, no matter how much you agree with a politician or think they're overall a really good thing, you are not going to find a completely unblemished record. Like Harriet Harman, a politician whom I love, who I think has done incredible things for equality, the reason that she first resigned from the initial Blair cabinet was because she had to carry through welfare cuts that were necessary because Gordon Brown had promised that they would keep to the spending limits set out by the Tories. And, you know, she says now, I think I should have argued hard against them. I'm sure there were people who suffered deeply as a result of those cuts, but whose political career doesn't involve some decisions they regret, some things they sacrifice for the greater good, some things they have to do. It is okay for people to draw an individual line where they go like, actually, past this point, I think these are immoral behaviours and and immoral acts, right? So I think that bit is perfectly legitimate. I thought the interesting thing about the row was not the row about what she actually said, but the kind of weird meta row of like, can people be friends across like the political divide, where one I thought was interesting because I thought there was a surprising amount of disingenuousness on both sides in that one, obviously, she wasn't saying, I have no friends who are Tories. But two, like, everyone has a friend who they talk to about, like, stamp collecting or football or fine wines or their preferred tablecloths. 
big foundation of many friendships um, or whatever right where they do not know the politics of that person well but, that's what I thought was really interesting and actually revealing of a certain type of kind of blinkeredness about the people having this conversation is you know there are a lot of people in Britain who just don't think about politics that often like their only engagement with politics is if anything voting every five years right this is the thing I thought was fascinating was this assumption that actually oh people you know you know how people make their friendships based around their ideological convictions in this defined in this very narrow party political way which I'm sure is true for most political journalists most MPs most people who work at a think tank or as a spad but I'm just not sure is that true of somebody who works in a call centre or on a checkout or as a teacher maybe but I think the thing is that is true of everyone it's very hard to have and actually I think this is why I think Although I think the moral characterization is fine, I think the the difficulty is that actually what really inhibits friendship is a lack of respect, right? And a lack of sincere good wishes. And although there are some MPs who are genuine friends across the political divide, the difficulty is it is hard to have a proper friendship with someone who you are secretly hoping loses their job. I don't think it's a coincidence that lots of the great cross-party friendships like Enoch Powell and Tony Benn, for example, were two people who, for most of their political careers, there was no real possibility, other than the 83, where the boundary changes went very heavily against Benn in his, his Bristol seat, where there was a prospect that the other one needed to lose their job for the other's politic to I'm, I'm succeed. Just, I'm so amused at the thought of telling angry people on Twitter about the, the fact that Tony Penn was friends with Enoch Powell. I mean, the thing is, I do think it is reasonable to think less of someone who is friends with someone who uses terms like rivers of blood and doesn't go, uh, mate, what are you on? I do think it is acceptable for rivers of blood to be a line in the sand which you're like i can't be friends with with someone who yeah, holds but this things. kind of comes back to the and i something that's a thought i've been gestating for a while about what i think of as a kind of the scrutiny economy and what things you know we have this conversation a lot about what things you're willing to let pass because you think overall someone is good and i think that tony ben benefits from a huge kind of oh but overall he was a good thing and i agree with him and he's therefore given a pass on on lots of stuff that is a bit <sighs> And actually, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have... I don't think I, you know, people on the internet wouldn't give Harriet Harman a pass had she been friends with Enoch Powell, right? Yeah, but I think, I mean, this is kind of a lot of the problem I have with a lot of sort of intra-left and indeed left-wing conversations about the right, where people go like, yeah, but so-and-so wouldn't give X a pass, right? So you know that girl who, when she was 14, like, sent a bunch of racist tweets and she went to university and joined the Labour Party and she introduced Jeremy Corbyn and then people were like, oh, she sent all these awful things when she was 14. And lots of people were like, oh, but, you know, people wouldn't be sympathetic to someone on the right who did this. Or, like, this 17-year-old who set up this, like, awful, like, attempt to clone Momentum, Activate, which, yes, is the most cringe thing I've ever seen. And in both cases, you have this thing where people go like, but the other side wouldn't forgive this child, mm. therefore I shouldn't. At some point, I think you do have to decide to unilaterally disarm and be the person who goes, actually, I am going to, to forgive, forgive this child this for their child. ill-advised I thing. am going to be yeah. as tolerant of Tony Benn and Enoch Powell. And I, I do think Powell is, is, is different. But No, I uh, had that argument with... Um, with I am of... Ha yeah, like, the, no, I had yeah. that argument with Aaron Bastani of Novara Media about who published someone's private Facebook conversation. And I said, I don't see how you can sit there and honk on about, oh, tabloids are so bad, tabloids are so bad, and then and then do that and, and, and totally invade someone's privacy. And his response was, you know, kind of like, no, you have to expect that. People have done that to me. And I agree, my response is exactly the same, which is that, you know, do as you would be done to is, is, is in some ways, as a recipe for ongoing low-level shittiness, right? Yeah. 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We are recorded by India Burke and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not subscribe to Stephen's morning call? God knows it'll make him happy, and uh, I think that's probably one of the only things that's important in life. It starts again on Monday, September the 4th, and you can find it at newstatesman.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.